I'm Oliver North, and in this War Stories podcast, you're going to hear the story of a U.S. and Allied tactical victory and a strategic defeat. It was 1968. Here in the U.S., there were anti-war riots, anti-draft riots, the assassination of Martin Luther King, and even more riots. In Vietnam, 500,000 U.S. soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines were fighting a war that was broadcast into America's living rooms every night on the evening news. On 17 January 1968, President Lyndon Baines Johnson delivered his State of the Union address and reassured Congress and the American people that we were winning the Vietnam War. Less than two weeks later, as the Tet New Year celebrations began, the North Vietnamese Army and the Viet Cong launched a massive surprise assault on more than 100 cities and towns in the Republic of Vietnam. The Tet Offensive shifted the fighting from the jungles and rice paddies of Vietnam to the streets of Saigon in the imperial city of Hue. The terrible images of dead and wounded seen back home had the effect on America that the North Vietnamese had wanted, despite their own terrible losses. In this Gripping War Stories podcast, you'll hear from the eyewitness participants in the bloody battle to retake the U.S. Embassy in Saigon, the Marines who weathered the pounding at Quezon, and those who helped pry the city of Hue out of enemy hands. Good evening, I'm Oliver North, and this is the Patriots Point Museum at Charleston, South Carolina. Welcome to War Stories. The year 1968 was one of the most tumultuous years in American history. The nation's resolve was tested by war, riots, demonstrations, and the assassination of leaders like Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy. When 1968 began, I was in my final year at Annapolis, preparing for a tour of duty in Vietnam. And the names and faces of dead Marines and naval officers that I'd gone to school with only a year or two earlier were appearing with increasing regularity in Memorial Hall at the Naval Academy. By 1968, some 500,000 Soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines were fighting and dying in Vietnam. The year began with a massive series of surprise attacks by the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong during the Lunar New Year celebration called Tet. More than 100 cities and towns were assaulted with devastating consequences for both sides. And some say it was the beginning of the end of the Vietnam War. By the summer of 1967, support at home for the war in Vietnam was eroding. Half of those interviewed in a Gallup poll that summer said they had no clear idea what the war was about. The United States had been increasingly involved in Vietnam since 1961. U.S. combat units were introduced in 1965, and by 1967, 13,000 American troops had been killed there. That August, confident President Lyndon Johnson announced he was sending 50,000 additional troops to the jungles of Vietnam. There will be risks, there will be doubts and delays and frustrations and disappointments. But the pursuit of peace must continue. LBJ also proposed that Americans whose average household income was under $8,000 dig even deeper into their wallets. In the summer of 1967, President Johnson, in order to pay for the war, asked Americans to uh, impose a surtax, an extra 10% on their income tax, to pay for the war. 
Don Oberdorfer was a journalist covering Vietnam for night newspapers and later wrote Tet, the turning point in the Vietnam War. So the political uh, support for the war diminished sharply. And in response, President Johnson tried to convince Americans that the war was very nearly won. And he put on what I call the success offensive. He brought back to this country General Westmoreland, the uh, chief of American forces in Vietnam, who appeared before Congress and before the National Press Club and told them that the war was very nearly over. We had almost won. 1968 was an election year in America, and the war was costing LBJ precious votes. LBJ's problems continued to mount. The year began with a seizure of the USS Pueblo by North Korean communists, who accused its crew of spying. And in Vietnam, 6,000 Marines and soldiers are being held under siege at Khe Sanh by North Vietnamese forces near the demilitarized zone, separating North and South Vietnam. But one thing both sides agreed upon was celebrating the Lunar New Year, called Tet. Tet is the Vietnamese Lunar New Year, which is the biggest uh, holiday in Vietnam. Uh, It is sort of the combination of... uh, Christmas and New Year's and Thanksgiving Day all rolled into one. The Tet Truce, proposed by the communist North Vietnamese, seemed to promise the people a safe holiday, free from the ever-present anxiety of war. And there had been a number of truces for Tet earlier in the Vietnam War. Both sides agreed not to have any military action during that period of time, so the soldiers on both sides could go home and be with their families. The 1968 Tet celebration seemed like it would be no different than any other year, especially since both sides had announced there would be a ceasefire. When Tet came up in 1968, all the American units were warned not to be out at uh, night, to be cordial to the Vietnamese because it was their holiday. But there would be a lot of fireworks at the start of the Lunar New Year. Edmund Fitzgerald recalls his first Tet celebration after arriving in Vietnam. It was a very festive time, and if you were really lucky, the Vietnamese would invite you for a meal on the Lunar New Year. Born in Yonkers, New York, Ed Fitzgerald was a 23-year-old Army intelligence officer when he was sent to Saigon in December 67. I was an ROTC graduate of Fordham College and went to infantry school, told them that I spoke German, so they'd send me to Germany. They said that if you're smart enough to learn German, you're smart enough to learn Vietnamese. If you were in Saigon and you were in uniform, you were supposed to wear khakis, not fatigues, because there was no war in Saigon. Before Ted, it was still trying to hang on to the image of the Paris of the East. But not everyone was convinced that cities like Saigon would remain out of the war. On January 5th, 1968, the U.S. Embassy issued this press release, warning of attacks during Tet. Taken from captured enemy documents, the statement warned that, quote, the revolutionary forces are for the first time going to attempt attacks on the major towns and cities, including Saigon. But it did not say when this was going to happen, and most people didn't believe it. I got a copy of the press release myself in Saigon. I read it, and I wrote in my own handwriting right next to it, moonshine. I didn't believe this would happen. It was not a problem of intelligence. It was a problem of belief. But all that changed in late January, just as the Tet holiday began. There were a series of attacks in the northern part of South Vietnam on the 30th of January. 
and the main attacks, which took place in Saigon and the rest of the country, took place a day later on the 31st. In a brazen move, the North Vietnamese and their South Vietnamese supporters, the Viet Cong, simultaneously targeted more than 100 cities, towns, and military bases. One of these assaults would deeply wound the American psyche, a daring attack on the U.S. Embassy in Saigon. The American Embassy is a place that Americans can identify with. If you say uh, uh, Mito or uh, Vinh Long or some other place, it just sounds like a group of words to Americans. But when you say they're attacking the embassy, people picture that as something very important. I was in uh, my hooch and uh, I had the radio and turned it on to see what was going on. And that's when I learned that the embassy had been attacked. And nothing like what occurred had ever been envisioned by anyone in country at that time. The U.S. Embassy is attacked, and one U.S. Army military policeman helps to take it back from the Viet Cong. That's next on War Stories. Of January 31st, 1968, a simultaneous attack on over a hundred cities and towns caught Americans and South Vietnamese by surprise. The Tet Offensive had begun, and Saigon was in the crosshairs. You began hearing uh, explosions, uh, automatic weapons. That was the first inkling that I had that something was wrong and radically wrong. You're listening to the actual recording of a military policeman pinned down in Saigon, desperately radioing his base for help. We were caught between a grenade launcher and heavy automatic weapons and on the rooftops over there's MPs that are probably dead up by the intersection. There's jeeps blown up. We need help fast. Over. That's the Roger. I'll inform our governor. Shortly before 3 a.m., Viet Cong guerrillas launched their surprise attack on the U.S. Embassy. The squad that attacked brought in its arms and its mortars and its dynamite in two batches. One was under a load of firewood on a truck coming into Saigon, and the other was mixed in with a load of tomatoes coming in from the countryside. Here's how the attack went down. Approximately 20 guerrillas met in an auto shop just five blocks from the embassy. The attackers drove a truck and a taxi cab over to the target. There, they shot at the MPs, Charles Daniel and William Seabask of the 716th Military Police Battalion. The MPs returned fire, slammed the embassy gate shut, and radioed for help. Next, the guerrillas used a 15-pound explosive and blew a three-foot hole in the compound's wall. Then they charged inside. Military policeman Charles Daniel reportedly yelled into his radio, they're coming in. And shortly after that transmission, Sebast and Daniel were killed. MPs Johnny Thomas and Owen Mebust heard Daniel's radio call and raced to the embassy and died in a hail of bullets when they arrived. Four of his colleagues were already dead when 26-year-old MP Frank Ribich from Cleveland was awakened shortly after 3 a.m. Someone came up into the hotel and hollering, alert, alert. 
When I got to the second floor, I bumped into the battalion commander. Battalion commander told me, I want you to go to the embassy, take an alert force to the embassy, and find out what's going on down there. We were armed with M-16s and 45s, and that's all we had. As we started to approach the embassy, uh, we started to receive small arms fire. I'm still not sure what's going on. 90 MPs and a group of Marines quickly surrounded the outside of the U.S. Embassy and began battling the Viet Cong hunkered down inside. I took cover behind a concrete uh, telephone pole or light pole base, and I'm looking uh, at the main gate to the embassy waiting for the uh, VC to come out. As I lay there, I see a black Citroen coming down uh, the boulevard directly at me. I didn't know if he was a civilian that was just lost, uh, caught up in this business. I instructed him to halt in Vietnamese. I could see he was not going to halt. I sent a burst of uh, rifle fire across his windshield. He uh, didn't stop, at which time uh, I took him under fire. Meanwhile, no one knew the fate of the 11 people inside the embassy. The MPs and Marines had to fight their way in. They ended up ramming the front gate with a jeep, opening it up, and then military police, in fact, entered onto the grounds. They then finished searching and destroying uh, the enemy that they, they, they encountered there. At 9.15 a.m. on January 31st, six and a half hours after the first shots were fired, the U.S. Embassy was declared secure. Four MPs, one Marine, and a South Vietnamese civilian had been killed, along with most of the invaders. I was tired. I was relieved. I thank God for letting me live through it. General William Westmoreland arrived at the compound to survey the damage and decided to downplay the attack. The enemy very deceitfully has taken advantage of the Tet Truce. In my opinion, this is diversionary uh, to his uh, main effort, which uh, he had planned to take place in Quang Tri province. Westmoreland was to some degree a distant character. He was haughty, he was a southerner, uh, a lot of people were turned off by it, but he was a really smart military man. Eric Hamill's a military historian and the author of Fire in the Streets. Things went bad. Westmoreland was the guy who got blamed. And when things went well, Johnson was the guy who took the accolades. The Harvard-educated Westmoreland faced this man, General Vo Nguyen Giap, a former school teacher with no formal military training. But Giap had been a soldier since the 40s and had helped drive the French out of Vietnam. He now had a master plan to reunite the country. The North Vietnamese Army and the Viet Cong main force would launch tactical and operational assaults throughout South Vietnam. And the plan was that the people of South Vietnam would have an uprising. They would, they would join the cause and overthrow the uh, government, take the place over, and ultimately reunify the, com the country. Intelligence officers like Edmund Fitzgerald had the job of questioning the prisoners that had been rounded up in the Saigon attacks. We'd bring them up to uh, our center and interrogate them and see if they had any knowledge. When Tet occurred, our area was totally surrounded. All of a sudden, we were interviewing everyone that was dragged in. We went from having 40 prisoners to having you know, 250 uh, in a matter of hours. majority of them were 18 to 22 and uh, not very well educated, not very much uh, military training, but believed in the cause and believed they were fighting to save their country. 
27 MPs lost their lives in Saigon that day. But small pockets of fighting continued in the South Vietnamese capital for weeks. Ted changed Saigon totally. And life for everyone in this city after that was never the same. The true story behind one of the most shocking photographs taken in Vietnam. It made front page news and outraged the American people. That's next on War Stories. On February 1st, the morning after the attack on the U.S. Embassy, mop-up operations were underway throughout Saigon. 34-year-old Eddie Adams was working in the Associated Press office when an NBC cameraman stuck his head in the door. He says, hey, we heard there's a little firefight up in Cholon, which is the uh, Chinese section of Saigon. And he says, anybody want to go? And I said, yeah, I'll go. You know, it was a slow day. Adams dreamed about becoming a photographer since his childhood in Pennsylvania. He went to Korea as a Marine combat photographer and in 1965 volunteered to cover the war in Vietnam for the Associated Press. As we're walking, we've seen the uh, South Vietnamese police pull this guy out the door that they just grabbed from the second story. He was sniping. And we start following him and walking up the street. And we get near the corner, and out of nowhere to my left, I see this guy walk in. And as soon as he got close to him, I see him go for his pistol. The man brandishing the gun was the national police chief, and as he raised the pistol up, I raised my camera and took a picture. Uh, and it turns out it was the time that he shot him. The lieutenant fell to the ground, and never in my life have I seen a sight like this where the blood, it was at least three or four foot of blood spurred straight up from his head. As soon as he shot him, he walked right up against us as he put his pistol in his holster, and he said, they killed many of my men and many of your people. I went back to the office and I dropped the film off. It was lunchtime. And I said to the people in the office, I said, I think I got a picture of some guy shooting somebody. I thought absolutely nothing of it. Uh, it's somebody shooting somebody. It's war. It happens every day. See you later. I went out to lunch and left the film there. Within 24 hours, Eddie Adams' snapshot of a Viet Cong guerrilla being executed made front pages around the world. It became a big, big deal. It was a dramatic photo, and it was one of the most important photos of the Vietnam War. Some were outraged that the photo showed the grim realities of a very uncivil civil war. And America condemned him. They said that he shot somebody in cold blood. Two lives were destroyed in that photograph. The person who was shot and the, the man who pulled the trigger. I know people that worked with General Wan. They said he was a good officer. Those who were there with him and served with him that week felt he did what he had to do. And they were there with him. I don't second guess another man. He was a good guy. He was fighting for America with America. I think he was a goddamn hero. Adam's shocking photo would win a Pulitzer Prize, but he remains torn about the acclaim the image received. I, honest to God, don't get it, even today. It's not the flag raised on Iwo Jima. It's one five hundredth of a second. There's somebody blowing somebody's head off. A lot of people <laughs> want their autograph pictures of that. I wouldn't hang anything like that in my house. The Tet Offensive left no major city in South Vietnam unscathed. 
Some of the fiercest fighting took place in the ancient capital of Hue. We were happy to be going out of the field. 29-year-old Marine Captain Myron Harrington from Augusta, Georgia, became the commander of D, or Delta Company, 1st Battalion, 5th Marines, just a week before the Tet Offensive started. Delta Company was fighting in the remote fields of Fubai when they got the order to move north to Hue City. We had no awareness of what was happening in Hue City. We were just told we were going to move into um, to Hue to support the operations up there. And of course, by that point in time, Hue City has essentially been invaded by the North Vietnamese Army. Hue City was uh, taken over by approximately 12,000 North Vietnamese uh, Army troops, uh, regulars, well-equipped, well-prepared, well-trained, supported by the uh, local Viet Cong infrastructure who had been preparing for this for some time. How did the NVA get into the city? The city of Hue basically, from a military point of view, was isolated. Through the Aoxiao uh, Valley, the North Vietnamese had a direct egress uh, into the city from the mountains from the, from the west, really unencumbered. Uh, there were no forces out there. Now, there may have been listening devices and things like that to pick up movement, uh, but whatever they had out there, they missed. In Hue City, the enemy was dug in so well, the Marines had to take it back block by block and house by house. But a Marine captain managed to raise the American flag over the ancient capital. That's next on War Stories. It's a lovely place with a river running through it, the river of perfumes. It is the place where many of the leaders of North Vietnam went to school, uh, where many of the leaders of South Vietnam went to school. It was the seat of the old imperial order of Vietnam. One lieutenant colonel stationed in Hue was 44-year-old Richard Brown from Nebraska. He was already a veteran of World War II in Korea by the time he became a military advisor in Vietnam. Brown wrote about his time in Hue in Palace Gate. I took off on my normal reconnaissance trip to, to Ashaw Valley uh, the morning after the first day, the, during the first day of the Tet holidays. But I noticed that, the, that a bunch of trails coming from the jungle towards Hue that had been not used for about nine months. His primary job was to advise South Vietnamese General Ngo Quang Trong, who was headquartered in the citadel on the north side of the river. I estimated the hundreds, if not thousands, of people went over those trails during the night, that one night, because they looked like highways compared to what they'd been before. All the grass was gone. The Ho Chi Minh Trail was a network of roads and trails that the North Vietnamese used to bring tens of thousands of troops and their supplies into South Vietnam. Some called it North Vietnam's Road to Victory. On January 31, 1968, Brown's suspicion about troop movements was confirmed when Hue was attacked. One of the primary targets for the North Vietnamese Army was the Military Assistance Command Vietnam, or MACV, compound. It housed some 200 advisors to the South Vietnamese Army, including a sleeping Richard Brown. Well, the first rocket landed just across the street from the compound. The second one landed in the barbed wire right by our front gate, and that was really close to my room. That's when I was wounded. 
In a War Stories exclusive, you're listening to the actual recording that Brown made of that horrific assault on the MACV compound. We're on siege, really, is what I'm asked to. We got hit with 140-millimeter rockets and the usual uh, mortars. We're running low on everything, food, water, and uh, medical supplies. Whoever happened to be in the compound at that time literally manned the walls. I mean, it was the Alamo. Uh, and they held the North Vietnamese at bay uh, through the night. Uh, North Vietnamese came fairly close to breaching it, but they didn't. We weren't sure we could hold the compound another night. Late in the afternoon, I heard the roar of tanks and the roar of cannons going up, and five Marine tanks came around the corner. And I was never so glad to see anything in my life as I were the tanks. They saved our lives. I can never forget approaching the MACV compound. It almost looked like Fort Apache, the Bronx. You know, it's like the cowboys and Indians. They're, they're holding the fort. Ron Christmas was a 28-year-old Marine captain from Pennsylvania when he arrived in Vietnam in 1967. He was named the commanding officer of Hotel Company, 2nd Battalion, 5th Marines. Christmas was stationed in Phu Lac when he got the order to move Hotel Company into Hue. He quickly discovered they were facing a new kind of battlefield for Vietnam, urban terrain. The Marine Corps hasn't fought in a build-up area yeah. since Korea. Seoul, well, that's Korea. right. We've encountered strong points and fighting positions that they've now had several days to prepare. They know yeah. you're coming. Yeah, they do. If you looked at it, what they really expected was because it was a Vietnamese city, no U.S. forces, that the Vietnamese would come. When we went at them, at them house by house, room by room, it really, it confused them. They would begin to flee. They wouldn't hold and defend because they knew that the Marines were going to take them out one by one. The 2nd Battalion, 5th Marines battled their way through the bloody streets of the city. By February 6th, they'd secured the Treasury Complex, the University Library, and the City Hospital. But their next objective had special significance. You succeeded in capturing uh, the, the Capitol building itself. It was really defended very, very heavily. How we seized it eventually is we went in under tear gas. The NVA did have gas masks, but they had to put theirs on. They had to pull them out. It gave us just enough time to make the run across the courtyard, get into the building. Hotel company made it into the building, but there was something in the courtyard that had to go. There was a large flagpole, and that flagpole was flying, a, you know, a North Vietnamese flag. That flag just really bothered me, and I said, Gunny, find an American flag. We're going to take that damn thing down and we're going to run up our own flag. The gunny and his small group, even though the fighting was still going around, tore down that flag and, of course, ran ours up. I will tell you, that was the most exhilarating moment in my life. Uh, even The battle seemed to stop. I kept hearing cheers from Marines inside the building, you know, that were fighting. But a week after raising the stars and stripes high above Huey, Hotel companies sustained 23 casualties in just one day. You get wounded yourself pretty badly on the 13th. Yeah. I saw an NVA soldier come up with a ro- uh, with an RPG, a rocket-propelled grenade, and fire it. And I can remember thinking to myself, what's he firing that at me for? I'm not a tank. He uh, was severely wounded in the leg by a mortar round. By that time, I was down to, uh, to just uh, two platoon commanders, wounded both of them, wounded me. After the capital was secured, the fighting on the south side of the city began to wane, and the Marines got a new mission, helping South Vietnamese General Trung take back the citadel on the other side of the river. When did you get the orders to cross 
the river and go north? We got the orders to cross the river and join the rest of the battalion in the Citadel on the um, evening of the 13th of February. Joining Captain Harrington that day was 19-year-old Robert Carroll from California. Fresh out of high school, Carroll had joined the Marines and was sent to Vietnam and assigned to Alpha Company, 1st Battalion, 5th Marines. It's a wonderful opportunity for a mortar team to hit you. You just want to get across that river as soon as possible. As we proceeded up the Perfume River, uh, we came under enemy fire. And I realized what the Marines of World War II must have felt when they had to hit those beaches at Guadalcanal and Tarawa. Until the Tet Offensive, the realities of the Vietnam War had seldom disturbed the 140,000 residents of Hue. But as the long and bloody battle raged on, the once beautiful and historic city lay in ruins. And back at home, President Johnson decided he'd had enough. For two weeks, South Vietnamese General Ngo Quang Trung hunkered down in his headquarters inside the Citadel. The Citadel was a four-square-mile walled compound built in 1802 and modeled after the Chinese Imperial Palace in Peking. Surrounded by the enemy, Trung and his troops desperately tried to hold their ground. It was obvious that Trung couldn't take the Citadel back. Uh, it was tightly packed buildings. Uh, there were areas that you just couldn't fire artillery, for example, because you would take out important national artifacts. I'm sure that General Trung would have preferred for the Vietnamese to take it back. Hue was the old imperial capital of uh, Vietnam and had a lot of symbolic meaning to the Vietnamese but it turned out to be too difficult to do. He had great relations with the Americans. He was one of the few Vietnamese generals who was respected by the, by the Americans. The job to take back the Citadel fell to the nearly 2,500 troops of the 1st and 5th Marine Regiments. What are your orders at that point? Well, at that point, we move into the, uh, the Citadel area. Uh, I join up with uh, Major Thompson, and at the battalion meeting that night, he tells me that uh, there's a heavy, heavily fortified position that is obstructing the battalion advance and that um, it needs to be taken out and that in the morning uh, Delta Company will take out uh, the Dong Ba Tower. They had to take one of the worst objectives and he had to take that immediately which was with the tower up on the wall and uh, it was a very, 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 very bad situation that he was thrown into. For days the Marines had tried to take out snipers perched in the Dong Ba Tower. Now it was Captain Harrington and Delta Company's turn. We conducted the, the major attack basically with uh, one platoon in the command group. So, um, as I say, everything that could go wrong uh, went wrong uh, right when the attack started. I lost communications with one of my platoons, and it was until uh, about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, several hours later, before we were able to uh, regain communication with them. It took Harrington and his men eight long hours to secure the tower, but the victory didn't last long. At about four o'clock the next morning, uh, they counterattacked, uh, took over the tower again, and we had to force them back out again because we had spent, you know, eight very bitter hours in taking the tower, so we weren't about to give it up. So we 
charged back up there and, and did that. So it, it was some difficult times, but I was surrounded by just some magnificent Marines, and they made it easy. What was the closest call you had? We were in constant contact uh, with them at a very, very short range, 20, 30 meters. Snipers uh, as close as, as 10 meters uh, to us. They were firing in mortars uh, on us. I just don't know why um, the Lord allowed me to, to go through that unscathed, uh, but he did. Myron is a good example of the, uh, the Southern citizen soldier. He was a Marine, but he was very much in the tradition of, of the gallant Southern officer uh, of the Civil War era. He, he joined because he believed. Uh, he stayed because he believed. He was an exemplary officer. He was a good leader. Uh, his men respected him. I mean, right off the bat, they respected him. Uh, he was fearless, absolutely fearless. I was the only officer uh, left in the company. I basically had less than a platoon uh, when we finished the battle. It was about a 50% casualty rate uh, in both battalions, 2-5 and 1-5. Along with Harrington, Rifleman Robert Carroll would spend the next two weeks fighting in vicious street battles throughout the walled citadel. They could see where we were moving. They had machine guns set up. They had snipers set up. Uh, they had North Vietnamese Army soldiers with RPGs set up in the windows near the doors, sometimes in the manholes. Sometimes they had holes they had dug and, and covered them up with uh, leaves and different type of limbs and concealed themselves in it. And every day... During that confrontation away was a day you thought you may die because it got that bad. At night it quieted down. It started up at 7 or 8 in the morning. You knew you had to go take another block. But we saddled up nevertheless. You know, we hung together. I had a mortar land right between my legs that didn't go off. And a sniper just missed me by a fraction of an inch. And that's when I re realized that the guy next to me wasn't firing. The same sniper had killed him and shot him through the head. On February 25th, after 25 days of heavy fighting, the Citadel was declared secured. 80% of the houses and buildings in the historic capital had been destroyed. 142 Marines had been killed in action and nearly 900 seriously wounded. It was one of the bloodiest and longest battles of the Vietnam War. When you reflect back on it, you say to yourself, in various parts of that engagement, gee, I wish I'd done this instead of that. We all carry uh, a lot of guilt because uh, I was the responsible as a company commander for, for the death and wounding of a lot of Marines. Um, and that's something that, that you carry with you. Uh, but then that's why we were there. Um, we were there to, to kill or be killed. And, you know, we worked hard at, at getting them before they got us. Myron Harrington and Ron Christmas were awarded the Navy Cross, the nation's second highest award for heroism for their courage at Huey. Myron Harrington was also awarded a Silver Star. There's always survivor's guilt. Why did I come out of, out of it and, and other people didn't? I still remember the faces, the names, and they're as clear as, as if it was yesterday. Coming up next, after the battle was over, the residents of Way struggled to heal, but a series of horrific discoveries made that next to impossible.
In the weeks and months following the Tet Offensive, the people of Hue City made a series of gruesome discoveries. In parks, schoolyards, and rice paddies, they found mass graves containing the bodies of 2,800 of their citizens who'd been shot, stabbed, or buried alive by the North Vietnamese Army. This was the political side of the war. It was to cut the enemies, in this case the South Vietnamese, head off. To kill its teachers, to kill its theologians, to kill its leaders. And that was done. Also to kill lower-level government workers is less than any level you're not safe. It was a terror campaign. Their friends and relatives came to find what they could uh, of the bodies. Some people's bodies were found very close to where they had been killed. But uh, the mass of those who were killed in Hue were marched off far away from the city and then executed. Vietnam was the first war to be televised in America every night on the evening news. And it had a profound effect on how Americans felt about the war. Well, Americans reacted uh, in different ways to the news of the attacks at Tet. There is, in this country, normally a rally around the flag. Someone is attacking forces of the United States. However, in this case, the Johnson administration had spent months trying to convince people that the war is very nearly won. And the Tet attacks seem to completely give the lie to this idea that the war is almost over. But most Americans knew the war really wasn't almost over after the New York Times reported General Westmoreland's next move. In March, General Westmoreland and the Joint Chiefs of Staff asked for 206,000 additional troops. They, at the same time, were claiming that Tet had been a great victory for the American side and a great defeat for the communist attackers. If this Tet has been such a great success, why do you need 200,000 more troops? Although President Johnson rejected sending the additional troops, a record 63% of Americans disapproved of his handling of the Vietnam War in a Gallup poll. On March 31st, two months to the day after the U.S. Embassy was attacked in Saigon, President Johnson went on television and made his shocking announcement. I shall not see and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. He was extremely anguished. He had a son-in-law over in Vietnam. He had been thinking for a while about whether he would run again. The Tet Offensive of 1968 was the biggest battle of the Vietnam War. It is the only battle that people will ever remember for very long. The North Vietnamese and Viet Cong who put it on suffered terrible losses, extraordinary losses, maybe as many as a half a million killed. So in that sense, in a military sense, it was a failure for the North Vietnamese. The D.C. and the uh, NVA had their asses handed to them. Uh, they were beaten the battlefield in a way that they'd never been beaten before. It was absolutely apparent to everybody. Didn't matter to them. Didn't matter in the least. Does it bother you to see the soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines who participated in the Vietnamese war depicted as something less than what they were? Oh, clearly it does. The marines that uh, I was blessed to fight with, to command, uh, were as good as any marine in any battle, any time in our history. In Way City, you know, they talk about uh, Iwo Jima and, you know, uncommon valor, you know, was a common virtue. In Way City, uncommon valor 
was a common virtue also. Every day you saw a young Marine do something he didn't need to do, but he did it because of his brother Marines. We seceded as a group. You know, there's nothing as an individual that I feel bad about that I did, and I'm proud of my service over there. The remembrance of, of those Marines and sailors and those corpsmen uh, were absolutely magnificent. Um, and, and you just you think about them on a daily basis, and, and you can't help uh, but do that because at that time they meant so much to you, and they still mean so much to me. I'm Oliver North, and you're watching War Stories on the Fox News Channel. Stay with us. Soldiers, sailors, airmen, and marines who fought through the Tet Offensive of 1968 know that they won their bloody battles. Yet the casualties we sustained broke the spirit, not of the warriors in Vietnam, but of the politicians in Washington. The terrible images of dead and wounded Americans seen back home had the effect that Ho Chi Minh and General Giap intended. And despite the terrible losses inflicted on the North Vietnamese, they launched the offensive that would eventually win them the war. The fighting in Vietnam went on for seven more years. But for those of us who arrived in Vietnam after Tet 68, the courageous men who fought that cooling campaign were extraordinary heroes. Theirs is a war story that deserves to be told. I'm Oliver North. Good night. And join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts.